Church family, we were going to jump back into James this morning until uh, yesterday, working through some things, just felt like the Lord shifted my direction. And so we're going to go somewhere a little different this morning uh, because the Christmas and holiday season is upon us. It's like the calm before the storm since we still have one last Sunday in November. I walked through the calendar with Bethany the other day of all the things happening in November. And uh, if you want to know what the difference is, the only person who's not crazy busy in in December is a college pastor because everyone in their ministry is gone. It's the only time. And and in college towns, things, which is what we're used to. And so we were looking through it and the reality is things are about to get busy for all of us, not that they're not already busy. But as we move into this season, in the midst of the times we're living in, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of everything, where is our hope and where is our focus? So I'm going to take you to a place that for some of you will be familiar. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, you can find on the screen, I believe we'll have the Pew Bible number for you. John chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 1 and and understand what's happened in chapter 2, just setting the context, is Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He has flipped the tables in the temple. He has made a whip. He's, He's gone. He's cleared out the temple because of the unrighteousness that has been taking place in, in, in the place that is to be dedicated to the worship of the Lord, and even, even beyond that, to the place where every aspect of the temple, the sacrifices, everything is there to be done in a way to point to Jesus. And if it's not pointing to Jesus, then it's going to point away from Jesus, which is what it's doing. And so in the midst of this time, he's in Jerusalem, and he's doing signs and wonders, and it says that many believed in his name, but that Jesus knew that ah, their belief was a little iffy. He knows what's in man. He didn't trust him, himself to them. And so understand, this is early in Jesus' ministry. People are starting to, to pay attention. Who is this man who does these things? And one of those people is a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now look with me, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's what it says. There was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees means literally the separated ones. They were the largest and the most important of the Jewish religious groups of Jesus' day. They, they, or they, were, they, they, they wielded great power. They did not occupy many of the general population, but they, they carried great power over daily life. They, they viewed the whole Old Testament as authoritative, and not just the whole Old Testament, but every oral law and tradition that had been come up from the Old Testament. They viewed all of them as authoritative. They were rigorous in their following of rules. In fact, they would move the center of worship from that of sacrifice to that of law. We see them throughout the Gospels pictured as arrogant, as haughty, and Nicodemus finds himself as one of this group. Not only that, but it says he is a ruler of the Jews, meaning he is a member of that supreme court of the Jewish life, the Sanhedrin. He's a sitting member of the Sanhedrin, and, and, he, and he, he comes to Jesus by night. Now, there's a lot of discussion by night. Is this because Nicodemus is secretly afraid? Is this, if you really do study, mo- most 
most uh, scholars actually think it, was, it just was literally night. That's when the conversation hap- happened to be. But that not only was it night physically in terms of time of day, but, but the night is also providing some symbolism for what's taking place in Nicodemus's heart. In Nicodemus's life, he finds himself in a place of night, of darkness, of lostness. And praise God, Jesus delights to meet people in the midst of their night. He says, he says Rabbi, now this, this is interesting, right? Jesus has no formal training. What is Jesus' formal training in the eyes of the Jews? Aren't you that carpenter's kid from, from Nazareth? Aren't you that blue-collar worker from that backwater town? And so when, when, when Nicodemus, who's, who's as a Pharisee, would have been enrolled in that, that program from the time of childhood, he would have had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized by 13, rigorous, trained. When he looks at Jesus and says, Rabbi, in his mind, he's paying Jesus a compliment of the highest nature. He's saying, you and I are equals. And he says, what I've observed, you're a teacher because no one can do these things. You've got some special relationship with God. Now catch the irony. Nicodemus thinks he's saying something of, of a compliment, and he's viewing Jesus as a fellow teacher of the law, not realizing that Jesus is not a fellow teacher of the law. He is the author of the law. They are not equals. Jesus is not just rabbi. He is Lord. So in the midst of this conversation, Jesus cuts to the quick and look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, let me grab your attention. I say to you, unless one is born again or unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus cuts to the heart of everything in the midst of what Nicodemus comes He says, here's the deal, Nicodemus. I'm telling you and I'm being honest. Unless someone is born from above, unless someone is born again, there is no shot for that individual to actually see the kingdom of God. Now understand with me, if we put ourselves in Nicodemus' shoes, how shocking this would be. Here is a man from the earliest of his days following the most stringent path that in our eyes would look righteous. This is the ultimate religious rule follower. And, And he's been on this path from a young age. And the whole reason, the whole aim for the Pharisees to follow all these rules, the whole goal is to see, to enter, to be a part of the kingdom of God. That time and that place when the rule of God will be completely honored and, and, and people will be in submission to that rule to the place where the resurrection comes, and Jesus says, I've got news for you. Unless you're born anew, you can't see it. This would be shocking and devastating to Nicodemus. I can't see it? What what do you mean I, I can't see it? And so Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, it's interesting. Jesus uses a term that's a play on words. When he says, and when you read in your Bible, unless a man is born again, that Greek word, you you can take it to mean be born again, like a second time, or it can mean to be born from above. 
Now, John's picked up on one aspect. We're going to find out from Jesus. Jesus is looking at another aspect. Jesus is not talking about you and I somehow re-entering our mother's womb and be born. And as, as crazy as that sounds, by the way, if you've, if you've grown up in church and you've heard on Wednesday nights we make that statement, this isn't that crazy. If you've never grown up around born-again language, this, this sounds like absolute lunacy. What, what do you mean born again? A human, you can only be born once. In fact, I'm aware of nobody who's ever physically been born twice. I am aware of someone who rose from the grave never to die again, but I'm not aware of anybody who somehow was physically born twice. But this is, this is the condition. Nicodemus is going, this is the condition to see the kingdom of God. What's going on? Look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, here's, here's what he says there for a second. He says, look, unless someone is born, and, and your Bible may say water and the spirit, capital S. Here's, and I've, I've worked through this in various ways. It's one of those places where you can make an argument either way in Greek. But here's, here's really, you notice I, I, the way we read it, water and spirit. There's two terms. They're governed by one preposition, meaning it's not referring to something, two separate things. You need to be born of water, like physical birth or baptism, or, and then you need to be born of the Spirit. It's not talking about two separate things. There's one preposition governing it, meaning you've got to be born of water and Spirit. There's this birth that's of water and Spirit. Well, what is that? Well, isn't it interesting? It's actually a reference to a part of the prophets in the Old Testament, which you would think, and you notice what Jesus says, uh, he says in verse 7, Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Here he's talking to a, a scholar of the law, to an expert in the Old Testament, and he says, Why are you marveling at this? Because he's clearly referencing the Old Testament. Listen to what Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36, verse 24, God is talking to his people, talking about the time when his salvation will come. And listen to what he says, Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from the nations where they're scattered in exile. I will gather you from the lands. I will bring you to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, my ways. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. You will be my, uh, so you will be my people, and I will be your God." When Jesus says here that, that this birth, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he is bringing out something that, that, that is rooted in the Old Testament prophecy of God saying, here's what's going to happen. There's going to come a day where I bring my salvation, and in this salvation, what this salvation is going to do to us as human beings, if we respond to it, it's going to be like water washing us completely clean from all the dirt and grime and filthiness of our sin and idolatry. Not only that, but it's going to take a dead heart. You notice Ezekiel said heart of stone. You ever, you, ever, you ever seen a statue with a stone heart? How alive is that heart? It's not. It's rock. It's not beating. 
It's unresponsive. It's dead. It's inanimate. I'm going to take your dead heart out, and I'm going to put a new heart of flesh, a heart that is alive, that's living, and not only that, but I'm going to take my spirit. You're going to have a new heart and spirit, and I'm going to put my own spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, inside you. This is the birth Jesus is talking about, a, a, a birth, the birth from above, to be born again means to undergo a birth that is a complete and total transformation of who I am as a human being. Or to use a word more precise, it is a complete and total regeneration where the me that was born, dead in my trespasses and sins, has died And where I have been made to life, I have been remade, made anew by water and spirit in Christ. This is what Jesus is referencing. And he says, look, this birth, and he mentions that which is born of flesh and flesh and that which is born of spirit and spirit. What he's driving at with Nicodemus is that physical birth, you existing as a physical human, that's not going to ever change. The way you're born is going to be the way you're going to be. There's no evolving from the flesh to the spirit. Not only that, but he says one must be born. And that word born is passive, which means this. You're born, you come out of your mother's womb in the flesh. There's no natural evolution from the flesh over here to the spirit, which you've got to be in the spirit to see and enter the kingdom. Not only is there no natural evolution, but to be born, again, to be born from above, passive means there is not a single thing you can do to get yourself out of this category and over to that category. Someone else is going to have to do it to you. He says, don't be amazed. He says, you ought to know this, that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and do not know where it comes from and where it's going, so is everyone born of the Spirit. He makes the statement to basically say, you see the wind, you hear the wind, you see the impact and the effects of the wind, but you don't control the wind. You don't dictate to the wind. And so just all this conversation, all this conversation about this new birth that's brought about by the Spirit, You don't control the Holy Spirit. You're not in charge of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does, what this new birth does, does not flow with the logic of human minds and control. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I mean, at this point, Nicodemus has had everything he ever thought was stable has been completely rocked says, how can this be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you, and notice, not a teacher, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't, you don't understand these things? Are you the leading PhD in religion and you don't understand this? Are you the greatest preacher of Israel and you don't get this? You've got the Old Testament memorized and you can't see this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we have seen. He's speaking of himself, he's speaking of the testimony of the law and the prophets when he says we. Jesus says, we speak of what we know, we speak of what we've seen, and look at what he says to Nicodemus, and you do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus, your problem is not a lack of knowledge, your problem is a refusal of will. 
Your problem is that not that you didn't have the right answers in front of you. Your problem is you refuse to believe the right answers. And he says, and I'm not telling you what, I'm not telling you what my opinion is. I am telling you firsthand eyewitness accurate facts and accounts. And he says, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He goes, if you don't believe me in simple stuff, how are you going to believe me in, in the stuff that matters? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus references a pivotal moment in the history of Israel uh, that, that we find in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, the people of Israel have fallen into sexual sin. They, they've fallen into the sin of the surrounding cultures. And as a way to discipline them, to bring them back, the Lord sends what Scripture calls fiery serpents, a.k.a. snakes whose bite hurts. Not only that, but, but this bite, it's venomous, it, it's killing some of them. And they realize we're in the wrong, what's going on? And so God instructs Moses to craft a, a, a snake made out of bronze and set it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And so that if a person, all of a sudden, boom, snake bites them, they are now reaping the consequences of their sin, that what they are commanded to do is to turn in faith, to turn trusting God, and, they're, and they're do, God's using a physical object to help them, to turn to look at that snake and God will bring healing, and that's what he says. So must, just as Moses raised, so must the Son of Man be raised. Well, what is he telling, what is he telling Nicodemus? Well, John, every time he uses the term lifted up, he always uses it to reference the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. It always emphasizes then beyond that, not just his raising up on the cross, but it's his raising up on the cross that leads to his being lifted up out of the grave, which leads to his being lifted up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And what Jesus is making clear before it ever happens is that this new birth, where a person is going to have to, just like, just like uh, what the Israelites did in turning to the, all the more so, this person is going to have to turn. To experience this birth, there's going to have to be a turning of faith to the work of Jesus who has been lifted up. Listen how Scripture describes 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 2.24, and He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you are healed." 1 John 4, written by the same author, says, In this is love, not that we loved God, not that we had any affection for God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that would appease the wrath our sin deserves. And when applied to, to the account of someone coming in faith, when that, when that sacrifice is applied, it not only appeases the wrath and the judgment that our sin deserves, but brings restoration and fellowship in between the wronged party, God, and the wrongdoer, us. It says 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. To understand, Jesus was lifted up on that cross. Jesus is lifted up on the cross not to die a gruesome death. Jesus is lifted up on the cross to carry the weight of not just my sin, though he would do it for only my sin, 
to carry the weight, according to 1 John, of all the world's sin. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, he drank the cup of God's wrath for every last drop. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up. By the way, lifted up is passive because it's our sin that put him there. It's the Father's love and will that put him there. Jesus allowed himself to be lifted up. Remember what he said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. And he says that whoever believes, that word believes there, literally means whoever faiths. Sometimes in English we can think of that idea as belief. I just believe hard enough, just wishful thinking hard enough. There was a bunch of Aggies last night who wishfully thinked hard enough and most of them aren't here this morning because I know where they sit. They, they must have stormed the field. Uh, that's not what belief is here. The problem is in English, our, the word, English word faith, we have no verbal form of that word. But in the Greek, the word for faith, this is the verbal form, meaning whoever faiths, whoever rests the totality of their being completely and totally on that which is true but unseen, completely and totally on the one who was lifted up, the one who was lifted up on the cross for their sin, the one who was then placed in a grave and was lifted up out of the grave, alive, never to die again. The one who was lifted up into heaven where he is seated at the most exalted place in all of creation, the right hand of God. The one who will come back and who will lift up his own into the sky to meet him there. Whomsoever faiths in this one will have eternal life. Why? Why is all this so? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only unique Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Why is this so? Because God so loved, church family. For God so agaped the world, the deliberate love of one who is good, who declares his value on the objects of his chosen and special love. The agape love of God is not a love that God simply feels and, and is at the whims of his emotions as if he has whims of emotions. It is a settled, intentional love of special choice. For God so loved that with this love, it's not this intentional and pure love. Who did he love? The world. The world, the world which is big and hostile to God is the object of his love and mercy. It doesn't just say, for God so loved those who might be receptive to his message. It doesn't just say, for God so loved th those, those who, will, who will shout amen loudly. It says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the corrupt politicians. For God so loved the bully at school. For God so loved the evil dictators. For God so loved the one who feels forgotten and alone and trampled on by society. For God so loved the world that he gave. He sacrificed. He endured the loss of is what that word means. He gave. He sent what? Your Bible and even mine says only begotten, which is a poor translation. That word in Greek, the reason I say that is because when we hear in English begotten, we think of birth. Jesus was not born as if he was a created being. Jesus is God. He's always been God. 
That word there in the Greek has nothing to do with birth, but it's a word that means one of a kind, the only, nothing else like him. And Jesus is one of a kind because he is the only one who is fully God and fully man. And his one and only Son, that whoever has faith in him would not perish but have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Jesus prays in John 17, eternal life is not some wish for something that's coming. Yes, there is a part of eternal life that is coming for all of us in Christ that we've not experienced yet. But Jesus says clearly in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Which means the moment you come to faith in Christ and possess a relationship, a restored relationship by the grace of Jesus Christ with God, you have eternal life. You are experiencing eternal life now. Now, we may be distracted. We may be focused on other things. We may not be living out and experiencing the joy and the greatness of that eternal life, but that's not because if we are in Christ, we lack it. It's because we've forgotten and God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, meaning not to come in. God could have, Jesus could have stepped down and said, all right, creation, I'm God. I gave you long enough. In the creation, I, I let, you know, I, certain aspects of my divine attributes are, are, are there in creation. None of you turned. None of you sought me. None of you were righteous. None of you cared. And so I'm wiping it all out. Every one of you gone. That's what he means. He, God didn't send the son to come in and wipe everybody out, but with the hope that what Jesus did, people might be saved. So what does this mean today? Well, for some, whether you may be watching online or maybe you're in this room, the most direct application is there may be some, you need to believe in Christ for the salvation of your being. Why? Because he's been lifted up and he's exalted in glory. What, what, what Jesus is emphatic in, church family, is that a person must be born again. There's no room for debate. No one can earn their way into heaven in the kingdom of God. No one can inherit the kingdom from their faithfulness of their family. No one can evolve into the kingdom. Everyone must be born again. And birth is an experience that is notable, it's unforgettable. There's no movement from evolution, from death to life, from flesh to spirit, from darkness to light, from lost to found. There is a deliberate moment of repentance and faith at the kind conviction of the Holy Spirit that I am in fact a sinner, that Jesus is who he says he is, and I look and understand that in Jesus, I need Jesus to save me so I can be made right with God because I was made for God. I don't need just a get out of hell free card so I can go about and do what I want. I need to be restored to God and understand church family. It is those who are restored to God who we call Christians in the most literal sense of the word from Scripture. But you cannot be a Christian if you have not come to a moment of new birth. You are not a Christian because your family ancestry saves you. I was born to Christian parents. That's why I'm a When did you come to know Christ? Oh, I was born a Christian. no. No one is born a Christian. We are born by nature children of wrath according to God's word. Well, when did you become a Christian? Well, I went to church. I read my Bible. I went through baptism as an infant or this or that. I did these works. No, no works will save. Well, when did you become a Christian? You know, I just have always known Jesus. Or at some point I just knew, no, there's no ambiguity to it. There was a period of time where I was born and I was dead. And then a moment came where there was a response. 
of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and I was made alive. Yet, church family, the reason I harp on this is we live in a day where so many times, I cannot tell you how many times I've asked to hear someone's testimony. Tell me how you came to know Jesus. Well, I've always known him. You may always have known about him, but you haven't, it's impossible, according to Scripture, to always know him. Well, uh, someone in there, I, 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 you know, I, well, I know, know all this. No. Scripture is filled with examples. In fact, there will be people, Jesus says on that day, who will say, Lord, we healed in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did all this stuff in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. You weren't born again. And there is a danger because of ways that truth has been disheveled that it is possible to have been in the church for a long time. It is possible to go through the motions of Christianity. It is possible to be a man or woman like Nicodemus who follows all the rules with impeccable character, at least in the eyes of people looking and watching, and not actually know Jesus. And what a scareful fright. Now understand, church family, I'm not saying if you don't remember the exact day of the week and the day of the month that you, that you came to faith in Christ, if you don't remember the exact words, well, you must not be saved. No. Some of us, God gave great memories, and some of us, God did not bless with good memories. But all of us should have enough memory to know there was a point in time where I was not in Christ, and there is a point in time after which I know I am in Christ because there was a response to Christ. So perhaps you're in here wondering, doubting, desperate. You're in the night of your own soul and you're looking for hope. Understand, Jesus will meet you in your night. You have only to respond to him. Maybe you go, I, I've, I've always seen myself as a Christian. I, man, everyone thinks I'm a Christian. It would be embarrassing at this point to come down and go, I, I'm not so sure I'm a Christian. I don't know that I've ever really placed my faith and repented from my sin in Christ. What a travesty to, be, to let embarrassment keep you from the Lord. I know of a man who was a Sunday school teacher, grew up as a pastor's child, was a Sunday school teacher for years in the youth department, and came to a point one night listening to the preacher preach where he realized, I, I, I really, I guess I just always thought I was a Christian because of my family, because of the stuff that I did. I've never really placed my faith in Christ. And then his wife realized the same thing, totally separate. And they're both down at the altar, uh, coming down saying, we need to know Christ. They repent, place faith in Christ. And it was asked to that pastor, that father of this man, does that embarrass you? And that pastor said, oh my goodness, how could it ever embarrass me? I am overjoyed that my son found what his soul was longing for. There is no greater joy than to know my children know the Lord. Do not let embarrassment keep you from responding, friend. By the way, that man and that pastor, that's my uncle and my grandfather. There are some of us in this room. We know we know the Lord. We've been saved by grace. We've been washed in the blood. Then church family, understand if, if the message to those who don't know Christ is to believe, then the message of us is to remember Remember the sweetness of our regeneration. Let the word sink in, church family, for God so loved you. For God so loved you, a God who would give such a costly and magnificent gift in the form of his son, 
as the propitiation for our sin is not a God who forgets His children. Even a nursing mother may forget their own, but I will not forget you. Your names are engraved on the palms of my hands. Remember, Jesus in His resurrected body still has scars from those nails that put Him on that cross for you and for me. A God who loves in this way is faithful when we succeed. He is faithful when we fail. He loves us and is faithful to enable us to follow Him truly by the power of the Holy Spirit. He loves us and is faithful in our joys. He loves us and is faithful in our, in our sorrows. He loves us and is faithful and we have freedom. He loves us and is faithful and we have persecution. He loves us and is faithful to bring us home safely and to come back. We need to remember the sweetness for God so loved. Not only that, but for God so loved. There's a little note. Notice this back in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It tells us something about who, who we have now been saved to be, church family, if we are in Christ. The Spirit cannot be controlled by the world. The world does not understand the Spirit. If we've been born of, of above, if the Holy Spirit of God lives within us, then church family understand that means a transformed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means a transformed life which cannot be controlled by the world and does not make sense to this world. The world should look at our lives and scratch their head because we don't play their game, because we don't follow their logic, the way we make decisions with our family, with our vocation, our finances, the way we speak, how we handle conflict, our time, ought to be different and misunderstood by this world because we have been born from above and it is the Holy Spirit of God actively transforming us from the inside out means we live by the Spirit rather than satisfy the desires of the flesh. We enjoy being children of God rather than seeking our value in the world. We walk with hope rather than falling victim to the despair and defeat and woe is me from the chaos of the world. It means by the Spirit we influence and have an influence on those around us. We're like Paul in Thessalonica. They, they brought them in before the local rulers, they said, here's these men, these men who have turned the world upside down. And it means when we do that, church family, we're going to embrace the mission of God and go, every one of us, as one who's been born again and not just go, ah, oh, that, that whole ministry, the mission of God, making disciples of all nations, that, that's the professional's job. There are no professional Christians. There's just Christians. And God's called each and one of us into different vocations and in different places with different access to different people in a world that He so loves. He doesn't approve of the world's sin, but He does love this world. And church family, there are many Nicodemuses in our world wandering, wondering, seeking, despairing, broken, desperate, and they will not believe in the God who so loves them according to Scripture unless they hear. 
and they will not hear unless it is preached, and we will not preach unless we are sent. Blessed of the feet are those who bring the good news in which the Lord says, go therefore. Go, go to your neighbor. Go down the street. Go to your classmate. Go to your coworker. Go. The world has a right to hear this news, church family. We are under obligation if we really understand what John 3.16 means. Do we love the world like God? Not the sin of the world, but the people of the world. Are we broken at the world and the brokenness around us? Do we remember that once we were one with the world? And the only reason if we're not one with the world anymore and we're now one with Christ is because somebody was faithful. And God worked through that and with that, And the kindness of the Spirit convicted our hearts. See, church family, I fear. Perhaps we too quickly get over the reality of John 3.16. Oh, John 3.16, that's that verse that every, every church kid knows. Perhaps we too quickly get over the reality of the fact that once Jesus met us in the death of our night, and with joy in His heart when we cried out, O Lord, save He said, come here, my child. Have we forgotten the power and simple reality of the fact that Jesus saved us if we're in Christ? There's a young lady in the 1800s named Charlotte. She was born December 12, 1840 in Virginia to an affluent family. She was known, especially as a young lady, for being feisty and outspoken. She grew up in a Christian home but rebelled against Christ until her college years. There in college at the female counterpart to the University of Virginia, she became one of the first women in all of the South to receive a master's degree, the world in front of her. In that time in college, she came to faith in Christ. God gripped her that she, in fact, was a sinner and she needed Jesus to save her. That salvation began working and stirring in her life, and at the age of 32, she heard God's call to go into a lost and broken world to those who had never heard. She hears God's call to go to the people of China. In doing so, she'll turn down a marriage proposal from a man who refuses to go. She leaves her job, her affluent family, And she goes to China where she dresses and embraces the custom and language of the Chinese, where she lives in hard and challenging times. She goes out further and further into the interior of China where fewer and fewer are. And we're not talking about a day like today where you can pretty much find Wi-Fi in almost any corner of the globe. We're talking about a day where she would be all alone, a woman in the middle of nowhere in the interior of China. In her life, she would go through plague and famine. She would live through three different revolutions and wars. By 1912, at 72 years old, she weighed only 50 pounds because of the hardness of the life. Other missionaries would see her. They'd send her back to the States to recover. She died en route. You see, church family, Lottie Moon never got over John 3.16. Lottie Moon was gripped by the fact that God so loved this world 
that what his love did in sending his one and only son absolutely changed and transformed her life. She was not controlled by the culture. She did not follow in. Uh, she, she left affluence. She left a master's degree. She left it all. Don't, don't misunderstand the example. I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't leave. That's between the Lord and you. But what she did makes no sense to the world, but it makes all sense to the Lord. She never got over it. And church family, the great men and women for Christ are those who never get over the simple reality of John 3.16. So I lay the challenge before us today as we move into this busy holiday season where there will be distractions and this and that, where who knows what next chaotic thing is going to happen. Will we be a people whose focus and hope is John 3.16, whose drive and mission is John 3.16 in the midst of a world that is in desperate despair? May it be. Let's pray. Father, It's too easy to just quote, for God so loved the world. God, may we be gripped by the fact that you love this world, which hates you, which hates the things of you, that never asked you to save it. And every one of us who have been saved were once part of this world. Lord, may we understand what is the height and depth and breadth and width of your love for us in Christ Jesus so we would be filled with your fullness. And God, being filled with your fullness and Holy Spirit and dwelt by you, may we walk in you. May we go where you move us. May the world look and go, I, I, I don't get that person. I know they love me. I know they care for me. I know they speak truth. I don't agree with them, but I don't get them. Lord, may doors open. May doors open for us to share and show the glory of your gospel. That, Lord, we as a church would be a beacon to the northeast region of Austin, to the ends of the earth. Never tiring of the fact that you so loved this world, you gave your one and only Son so that people would not perish in their trespass and sin, but would be redeemed, saved, restored, reconciled, regenerated, and would have everlasting life. Holy Spirit, as you stir our hearts, may we respond to you today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.